This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be in Acts 16, um, and I'm going to start in verse 16, 19, and then I'm going to go all the way through the rest of it. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to the, him and all who were in his house. And he took them to the same and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Thanks, Sarah. I've always been uh, fascinated by the concept of uh, watersheds and uh, divides. 
Um, if you don't know what that is, uh, here's the idea. Here's a picture of the continent, and uh, you see uh, this red line that goes down the continental divide. That's kind of like the Rocky Mountains in America. And here's the idea. If a uh, drop of water falls on either side of that line, it will determine where that drop of water ends up. So the idea is if it falls on the east side of that line, eventually, so to speak, the water will flow all the way into the um, Atlantic Ocean. But if it falls on the west side of the line, then it's going to fall, flow over to the Pacific Ocean. So the idea there is that a drop of water can just be a little bit off here or a little bit off there, but the ending location where that drop ends up is vastly different. And this is where we get the concept of watershed decisions. Decisions that feel like in the moment, oh, it's here or it's here. They don't seem very far off, but in the end, they end up leading to vastly different places. And we face a lot of watershed decision moments in the Christian life. In fact, I think that every time we experience a trial or suffering, those moments of trials and suffering really become watershed moments. Because when I think about the people I know in my life, uh, some of the Christians that I know that are the most joyful, most secure, most hopeful Christians are ones who have been through a great amount of suffering. Haven't you seen that in your life? But I've also met Christians who are bitter and angry and cold, and they too have been through a lot of trials and suffering. So it seems like a lot of trial and suffering can either lead you to a place of joy and security and hope, or it can lead you to bitterness and anger and frustration. And there's a gap, there's a gap for where it will lead you to. And so those moments of suffering, those moments of suffering really become watershed moments. And I contend to you this morning, the difference is hope. I mean, did you hear this story? You have Paul and you have Silas, and they are beaten, they're stripped naked, they're thrown into prison, they're falsely accused, their feet are held in the stocks. And what are they doing? It's okay to talk back to me. That, that way I know you're awake. So what are, what are they doing? Worshiping, they're praising, they're singing. How do, you, how do you get there? How does that happen? I believe it, hope is the key. Hope is the difference. I'm going to prove this to you. So you're going to do this all day. I want you to leave something here in Acts 16, because I want you to go over to Romans 5 for a minute, because here's what's really awesome about Paul. We have Paul in this moment. We're seeing the result of something in Paul's life, but he wrote a lot of stuff. Two-thirds of the New Testament is by Paul. And one of the things that Paul penned is a very lengthy letter to the church in Rome. And in the church in Rome, he reveals something really interesting in Romans chapter 5. So leaving something here in Acts 16, I want you to turn to Romans 5 for a minute. And Romans 5 is chocked full of awesome theology and just straight up want to tell you we're going to be in Romans 5 quite a bit today alongside of Acts 16. But I want you to see this in verse number 3. Look at this with me in uh, Romans 5 verse number 3. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our church sufferings. Okay. 
Paul is saying we rejoice in sufferings. And we're seeing that happening in Acts 16. The dude's in prison. He's been beaten, but he is rejoicing in the midst of his suffering. Well, how does that happen? Well, not only that, we rejoice in suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And read this last part with me, if you would, please. And character produces, church, hope. And I want you to look at what verse 5 says about hope. Look at this. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Hope is the difference, church. Hope is the difference. Put yourself back in your moments of suffering and trial. How are you doing with that? How are you doing living in those moments? And if those are moments filled with hope, then they are moments where in the trial you are focusing on God. You get your eyes off of what's going on. You're focusing on God. But if you're meandering toward the bitterness, then chances are you are focusing on self. And hope is a difference. So all that to set up this big idea of the day, and I want you to write it down. In the midst of suffering, I will choose hope. In the midst of suffering, I will choose hope. Now, straight up, I'm going to be giving you a lot of theology today and doing a lot of teaching. And um, it's, it's, I'm totally okay with that, but I want you just to hang on and know that I'm going to conclude the sermon today with one simple thing, okay? One simple thing to cling to in the midst of trials and suffering that I think will make all the difference in the world for you. So let's go through this first, though. I want to talk about the root of hope. Where does hope like that come from? Well, uh, let's go back to the story a little bit, and I want to set the stage for you, uh, because I believe something really firmly here, and that's this. Doctrine determines the direction of your heart. Doctrine determines the direction. What's the difference here in that struggling moment? And I want to contend to you, the difference is Paul had a good theology. Paul had right doctrine. And when it comes to this concept of suffering and trials, I don't believe the vast majority of Christianity has the theology to stand on to make it through to hope. And I want to help you with a good theological basis. And to do that, there's some really tough things we have to wrestle through. So let's go back a little bit, and, and I want you to let your eyes fall in Romans uh, chapter, no, not Romans, Acts chapter 16. So flip back to Acts 16. Again, leave a piece of paper or watered up chewing gum or something there in Romans 6. We'll be coming back to that, but I want you to take a look at Romans, or Acts 16, and check this out. Now, I want to walk through this text, and, and I want you to just to pull yourself in the sandals of Paul and Silas for a minute, and check out what all they had to go through. So here's verse number 19 now, and when her owners saw that her, their hope of gain was gone, they, what's the word? They seized Paul and Silas, look at these words here, and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Not really true. So falsely accused, verse 22, uh, the crowds joined in attacking them. So imagine that now. The crowds are attacking him. Again, put yourself there. Smell the Bible. Feel the Bible. If you were Paul and Silas, you're being falsely accused. And now all of a sudden, all these people are beginning to attack you. 
And the magistrates tore the garments off them. You're stripped naked. And gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Isn't that a funny line? <laughs> How, that, yeah, they're real safe, aren't they? Being beat with rods and stripped naked. That's real safe. Verse 24, having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Look at all that. Attacked, dragged, seized, stripped naked, beaten with many blows, thrown into prison, feet in the stocks. Where's God in all that? Now, we know the end of the story. We know God's about to show up, but they didn't know at the time. Where is God in all that suffering? One theological truth that comes out of this text, I believe, is this, that God doesn't always intervene in the midst of suffering. God does not always intervene in the midst of suffering. And that's really hard. That's hard for a lot of people. Because they, they, they see the suffering and the pain in the world and they say, where is God in all of that? In fact, a playwright was actually writing a play about Job and his Job character uh, says this line, Archibald MacLeish is the playwright, but it's a, it's a famous kind of quote that people use actually quite often. If God is good, he is not God. And if God is God, he is not good. In other words, if God is in complete sovereign control, then how can he be sovereign in control of all things and good? It's called the problem of pain or the problem of suffering. And people struggle with this regularly. I was listening to Al Mohler this past week, and, or maybe it was a week ago, but anyway, whatever it was, he was talking about this very thing. He said he read an article in the New York Times written by a Jew. And this Jew was talking with his son who was going through bar mitzvah. And his son had um, been going through all of this. And he said, Dad, I'm really struggling with this. I'm kind of praying to a God that I don't believe in. I'm kind of praying to a God I don't believe in. And he said, well, well why is that true? And, and he said, well, I don't, I'm not, I don't think that God can be good and God. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, all these people died in the pandemic. And I'm really struggling with the idea that so many people died in this pandemic. And then the son said something like this. He said, um, if that was you and you could do something about it and you really cared, wouldn't you? How do you work through that? Because you have to. Have you experienced suffering in your life? Have you seen the suffering in the world? How do you make sense of Uvalde and Columbine and you name it? The war in Ukraine, countless people dying. And where is God? I'm not sure that the church as a whole has the answer. And a lot of people end up right where this author did who says, I pray to a God I don't believe in. And I want to say to you, I think we have a better theology than that. And I want to help you uh, with some of that. 
First of all, what, here's what I want to do. I want to go back to the very beginning of it all. And I want to go back to this uh, key truth. Write this down somewhere. <clears throat> God creates only that which is good. God creates only that which is good. Genesis 1.31 says this. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. God, listen to me now very carefully. It's so important to have this theology underneath you, this foundation. Our God is not the author of evil. Our God is not the author, the creator of, of those situations. He didn't beat Paul and Silas. He didn't take up a gun and go to Uvalde. That was not our God. And we know that based on several scripture verses. Here is James 1.13, which says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God cannot be tempted with evil. God is not the author. This kind of puts the nail in the coffin. This is 1 John 1, 5, which says this. This is the message we have heard from the beginning and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is what? No darkness at all. Our God is not the author of evil. God creates only that which is good. But what happened in the garden then? So God made everything, and everything was good, so, so what changed? What happened? Well, we know what happened. Men chose to sin. Men chose evil. Genesis 3 is clear on that story and the result of it, because we see at the end of that where the curse is coming down, and now you had to do some weeding. Did you have to weed this summer yet? You have to keep mowing your stinking lawn. Like I get the thing mowed, and I feel like I've got to mow it again already. And I know they have robots out there that'll do it for you, but I'm a, you know, listen, if there really is a robot apocalypse one day and they try to kill us, I don't want a lawnmower robot, okay? I just don't, I don't want that, just straight up. Uh, but men chose evil, men chose evil, and when he did, the world is broken. And suffering and wickedness come into the world as a result of men's sin. Men chose to sin. This is a... Um, from Romans 5, again, I told you Romans 5 is going to play into this a lot. Here's Romans 5, 12, which says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Why do the innocent people die? Why do men take up weapons and go into elementary schools? Because of sin. And sin brings forth death. Why all the suffering in Ukraine? Because of sin. And man chose to sin, and therefore that sin is coming into the world and death through sin. It's a result of that choice. Now, I have to just say this really carefully now. What I'm saying is the suffering and the sin, the, the death in the world is not... God's fault, it's man's fault. We bear that responsibility. Now, I say something like that, then what I think begins happening in your mind is you begin thinking about the trials that you've been through 
And then you're trying to connect sin to that trial to say, well, this trial happened because I screwed up and I did the sin. Or this trial happened. And we've had that. We've had people accuse us of that. When I was uh, pastoring in Elkhart, we were trying to sell our house in Minnesota. And it was a bad time to sell a house in Minnesota at that time. And we could not get that same thing sold. It took over a year to sell the house. And I had one of the men in the church come up to me and says, would you just repent of whatever sin that you're in so that you can get that house sold? Come here and give me a hug, buddy. Thank you for that. That was so sweet. Love that. That's a way to encourage your pastor. Thank you for that. And we kind of get this assumption that, okay, because of a trial, it's because of this sin. And uh, uh, interestingly enough, when Jesus was walking this planet, do you remember this? And he came up to a man who was blind, and his apostle said, well, who sinned, him or his parents? He was born blind. What did God say? What did Jesus say? Not either him nor his parents sinned, but this was done for the glory of God. And so because we're living in a broken world, sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes the consequences of our sin bring trial and suffering. But I don't want you to walk in life believing that every trial is a result of some sin. Maybe, but maybe not. Now, we always sin constantly, right? And the gospel always applies constantly. Can I get a witness? So we're always going back to the gospel. In fact, it brings us to this. Very, very, very important truth when you're trying to understand this. God is redeeming it all. God is going to redeem it all. All the brokenness, all the trials, all the pain, all the suffering, all the injustices, none of it is going to escape the hand of a God who is redeeming it all back to himself. In fact, let me uh, share some uh, verses with you. We know right there in the garden, uh, Genesis 3, 16, there's a promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. So right away, we see a promise that God is going to fix all of this. And we see it in Romans chapter 5 again. Here's 5.15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Yes, one man's sin brought forth lots of death. But you need to know a good and loving God is winning it all back to himself. And he did that by giving his son, Jesus Christ. And the end of all of that is this, Revelation 21. Look at this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Check this out, church. Come on now. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is coming a time when no suffering, no tears, no trials, every injustice will be made right by men either believing and accepting the gift that Christ has given them or by paying for it themselves in eternity in hell. But no injustice will escape the hand of a just, just God. So how can God be good when there is so much evil? Well, God creates only that which is good. Men chose evil, but even in that, God said, I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to fix it. And through it all, now here's what's really important to understand, through it all, he has brought glory. Glory over it all. Our God is so good and so loving and so kind and to him and him alone belongs.
the glory. Because here is the problem at the root of that question. If God is God, or if God is good, he is not God, and if God is God, he is not good. Here's the problem at the end of that. It's their definition of what good is. Church, is good really a suffering-free life? I want you to think for a moment. Courtney and I were talking about this last night, sitting out on our porch, and you know, we're like, man, just thinking back through some of the things that God's brought us through. And at the end of all that, you know, she's like, you know, it's tempting sometimes to say, I wish that life could be suffering-free. And I said, it is tempting, but babe, you are the woman you are today, godly and secure because of the things we've suffered. And that doesn't surprise us. It's exactly what Romans promises. In fact, I'm going to jump back to verse number two. This is Romans. I'll put it up on the screen. I told you to leave something there. I forgot. I had all these verses on the screen for you. But here's Romans 2, uh, 5, 2 through 5. Through him also have attained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now check this out. And we rejoice in hope of the what? The glory of God. You listen, here's the thing. God's glory is the thing your soul longs for more than anything else. Men try to fill that void, that hole up with pleasure and comfort and ease. And God knows the only thing to really satisfy your soul is not your achievements, it's not your comfort, it's not your happiness, it is his glory. And when you see his glory and understand his glory and relish in all of that, man, that's what satisfies the soul. And to really see it, man, we have to learn to rejoice in hope. Of what? Hope of the glory of God. How do we get there? Well, not only that, rejoice in our sufferings. When suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love is important into our hearts. You get it? We need hope, and we get hope, and we get hope through sufferings and trials. So over it all, our God is good. He is very good because here it is. The ultimate end of suffering is what? Hope. So yeah, suffering happens. Sometimes God doesn't show up. And he got this first part of this, you know, Paul and Silas prison thing where he wasn't showing up. Something was different in Paul, man. He had learned some things. And we need to learn some things. And how do we learn it? Well, how did Jesus learn it? Isn't this interesting? This is, this is Hebrews 5.8, which says this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. What? How? 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 Through what he, church? Suffered. Suffering is not evidence of an evil God. Suffering is evidence of a good God. And just think about this. How much do people who hate God still get to enjoy in this life? They get food. They get shelter. They get sunrises. They get paintings and music and all of this common grace of God, even though they hate God. How good is our God? Shouldn't amaze us that they're suffering. This should amaze us that God allows any grace at all, but he sheds it on us. And so what I really want to do is get down into, because listen, I'm convinced of this, probably in this room right now. Be honest with me, in your soul. Some of you are like, I don't know about God. I mean, is he really that good? 
Because when I look back in my life, I see all of these things that I just don't understand in all these sufferings. So a couple of questions here. In what ways have you suffered? Think about that. What lessons have you learned as a result of your suffering? How amazed are you that God redeems us even though we are the ones that failed? <laughs> and how does that, how living with that perspective give you hope? Hope. Paul and Silas apparently had a deep, deep theology in the goodness of God. And it had a result. Let's talk about this. The root of hope. Let's talk about the result of hope. The result of hope. Looking at the text, what do we see? Well, let's go back to the text. Now I want to go down to verse number 25 now. Um, I, love, I love the first two words of this, by the way. Uh, look at verse number 25. What, what are the first two words you read in your Bible? You can talk to me. What are the first two words? About midnight. Do you see that? About midnight. Why does God always wait till midnight? Is that true for you? Like, it is true. Like, it just seems to always wait till midnight. And there have been lots of times, Adam and I will talk about this, lots of times in the history of our church, when it's like, okay, God, if you don't show up, if you don't show up, I remember in the early days looking at, like, our finances and projected out, and it's like, in two weeks, we'll be in the negative. Awesome. <laughs> God, it's time. It's time. And what we've seen over and over again is uh, God shows up at just the right time with just the right amount. But normally, it's, it's about midnight. It's about midnight. All right, it's not even the sermon, but that's free. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. Come on now. Come on, they were praying. Here they were, beaten, seized, suffering. Where is God? And I don't believe this is the first time they prayed. Are you kidding me? You don't think they were praying as they were being beaten? You don't think they were praying, God, rescue us, God, save us, God, do something time and time again after all of the suffering, all of this, this difficulty, and they were still praying. They were still praying. A result of hope is effective prayer. Crying out to God. Because here's the reality of it. This is so awesome in, in, in the Bible when you study this out. God, listen now, God really, really, really wants you to trust him so much that when you're in trouble, you cry out to him. I'm going to say it again. God really, really, really wants you to trust him so much that when you're in trouble, you cry out to him. Here is Psalm 16, uh, 116, Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he, what, heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold of me. I suffer distress and anguish. Here it is. Then I, come on church, called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. So glad for that. Can I give a witness? When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, oh, my soul to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And in times of trouble and difficulty, God wants you to trust him so much that you cry out to him in prayer. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray. How much do you trust God? Do you trust him that deeply? Where does that deep trust come from? Doesn't it come from 
in the moments of trial and suffering, this watershed moment of, am I going to focus on God? Am I going to focus on me? And when you get your eyes on God and you think about him and you cry out to him, he shows up and he shows up and he shows up. So think about just the, the whole pattern. I'm in trouble. I cry out to God. He shows up. I'm in trouble. I cry out to God. He shows up. I'm in trouble. You got to have those moments of trouble to cry out to God for him to show up, for him to establish beneath you a firm foundation of faith so that in those moments you will cry out to him like that. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they believed when they prayed that God would show up. Now, God showing up doesn't always look like what we want it to look like. Do you understand this? Sometimes, he does not relieve us from our suffering. We know, through it all, he is good. And he is working something in us that we cannot have inside us without that pathway of suffering. What's the result of suffering? Well, effective prayer. How does it come in those moments, man, we just trust God? Here's another result. (laughs) Passionate worship, passionate worship. By the way, if I could write the sermon again, I would have done persistent prayer just because then I'd be alliterated and that would please the Lord. (laughs) But you can write that down, however you want to. Uh, Passionate worship, passionate worship. And this is uh, so cool. This is, again, verse number 25. And they were singing hymns to God. They were singing hymns to God. Um, Which one do you think it was? Amazing Grace? I come to the garden alone while the dew is... By the way, it's a goofy song. If you stop and think about it, like you're singing about you're walking through a garden. Sorry if I'm taking your favorite uh, hymn song. Not those hymns, right? Not those hymns, because none of those are written yet. It could be the Psalms put to music. We know for sure there were hymns the church had because Paul quotes from some of those hymns in his epistles. But here's what we know for sure. We don't know what the songs were, how they went. Here's what we know for sure. They were deep with theology. Why do we know that? Because this is Paul writing to the church at Colossae when he says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, how? In all wisdom, singing what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs for thanksgiving in your heart. We're to teach one another by what we sing. Isn't that cool? And the theology goes deep when we sing deep theological songs. Listen, church, what we sing matters. It really does. So I'm so thankful for Pastor Adam and the worship team because nothing gets through, uh, gets up here unless it's gone through the Pastor Adam grid. And that thing is like really, really tight. Let's just say I've tried to get some songs through that he said, no, nah, probably not. But I love the Star Wars theme song. No, 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 we're not going to do it in worship. We're not going to do it. No, honestly, like, like just, just some of the, the very careful selection and the, what we sing being based on what is true, done in a contemporary way so that most people can, can um, resonate and, 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 and they can go deep into your soul. But man, it's so, so powerful. And there have been times when I've literally been brought to my knees singing. I'll never forget when we were planting this church and I was really, really struggling with anxiety. Is it okay to admit that? Like I had some moments where I was like, is this thing going to happen? 
Are we ever going to get a church? Are we going to have the finances, the people, everything? And I was especially struggling with anxiety. And, and one time we went back over to, to Harvest in Chicago and Vertical Church Worship had just come up with a new song. Now that morning we had sang, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. You know that song? I love that song. That song is like, like Jamie and Jesus' song. I've known that. And I, haven't, I hadn't sang it in decades. And we sang it that morning. I'm like, what is this? This is so cool. And then they had this new song come out. And the second verse of the new song said this. Open wide our hearts now to yours. Here it is. Every fear. What? Bow down to your love. And I, read, I sang that line, and I, I, I just collapsed. I went like right down on my knees in the, in the chairs, and I was like, God, thank you for that. Because that's based on a truth. That's based on 1 John 4, 18, which says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. If I'm fearful, I'm not living life loved. Every fear bowed down to your love. It's so powerful. What we sing matters. So listen, what do you sing to yourself? Now, is it okay to listen to country music? Yes. Is it okay? <laughs> I think I told you this story. That, did I tell you this story? I hate to, to do this. You know, I'll leave little side trails. But uh, Drew was talking about a song. Um, what's that song, Drew? Uh, you Name the Babies, I'll Name the Dogs. And I said, that's going to be the stupidest name for a song I ever heard. So I got home to Courtney. I'm like, Courtney, we gotta listen. I don't know what this song sounds like, but Drew told me, I gotta find it. I gotta listen to it. And I listen to it. I'm like, I kind of like that song. <laughs> that's kind of a cool song. Now, that's not a blanket over, is that Blake Shelton? That's not a blanket over all of his music or country music, but can you listen to country music or can you listen to um, jazz and all? Yeah, you, yes, of course. But, but I want to challenge you to make the bulk of your listening experience to be things that remind you of how good Jesus is and how good God is. And so yes, here, sing the songs, and we sing the songs, but as you live your life, man, do you have certain songs? I can tell you straight up, Stephen Chris Chapman, for me, just he has some songs that are just like, ah, oh, I needed that, I needed that. So, powerful worship. It looks like the team fixed it now. It's persistent prayer, passionate worship. There we go. That's my team looking out for me. Um, <laughs> Anna, you rock. But also this, write this down, powerful witness, powerful witness. This is where you get in this, in this uh, story, and this is awesome. So let's check this out. You have, um, there's so much to talk through. I mean, you probably realize as Sarah was reading through this text, there's a ton here. The sermon could have been five hours. All in favor? Oh, okay, I won't do that to you. But uh, you have this happen, and uh, I want you to see this. So the, they're praying, they're singing, the earthquake comes. Verse number 27, when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. This is all due to Roman custom and Roman law. He was responsible for the prisoners, and if they escaped, he was going to be tortured and killed. And to reserve his own honor, he would take his own life. He was about to do that. And in verse 29, Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, and fell down before Paul and Silas. And when he brought them out, he said, what's the first question? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Where did he know to ask that question? What well, had to have been, probably, now Paul and Silas had a reputation. They were spreading the message of the gospel. Maybe he heard something about that, but for sure, he listened to their prayers. Probably they prayed out loud. And he listened to their songs. And even though they were in the midst of great trial and difficulty, they had hope. 
And he was like, man, I want some of that too. What must I do to be saved? And Paul witnesses strongly, and he said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And you and your household. And I love this verse right too. And he, and uh, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them and he cleaned their wounds and they all get saved and they all get baptized and there's great joy. Look at that. Look at the end of a life with hope and what a life with hope will do. Because when you live with hope, that kind of hope, man, I'm telling you, it's a powerful, powerful witness. John Piper said this of this text. He said, God has saving purposes in his children's suffering. Peter writes this later. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for what? For a reason for the church, come on now, hope that is within you. Hope is so powerful. What makes a difference? How am I going to be an effective witness today? How am I going to tell my neighbors about Jesus? And we challenge you in that and we push you to that and, and I want to do that. But here's what I want to do even more than that. I want to push you to live a life of hope, to really believe in God. And in those watershed moments when the trials and the suffering are upon you, man, to choose hope, to choose hope, to get your focus on God and not on you. And when you live that way, others will see that hope. And they'll ask, why do you have that hope? Because I have Jesus, that's why. What must I do to be saved? Let me share that with you. Now, that's a lot. A lot of theology, a lot of stuff. I want to boil it down to one thing. One thing. I want to encourage you, challenge you to memorize this verse. This is Psalm 4211. This is, uh, I think I've mentioned this before in church. I, I quote this verse probably more than I quote any verse to myself. Uh, and that's depending on the season. It hasn't been so much lately, but it has been true in times of my life. But I want you to read it with me. Can we do this together? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, I believe a couple of things that are important to know about that. Because some of you say, well, yeah, well, in heaven. So life is really going to suck until I get to heaven. Then I'll praise God. Well, David earlier said, I would have despaired had I not believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So there is still hope for you here. But yes, ultimately in heaven. And in the midst of being cast down, in turmoil, struggling, this verse reminds you to what, what to do. Just read the last part with me. Hope in God. Let's read it together. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You get that verse memorized. And here's what you just got to do. You know, all the theology I've talked about just, just boils down to this. In the moment, in that watershed moment of trial and suffering, I'm going to choose hope. I'm going to put my heart on hope. And if I do that, and I do that, and I do that, man, God is going to do something in me that's going to be a witness, that's going to be worshipful, that's going to lead me to prayer. And I get to where Paul and Silas are by focusing on hope. So God, I thank you so much for this truth. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for stories like this that challenge us, but not just, it's how good you are, not just giving us a story, but then giving us all the background theology of the Apostle Paul that gives us how he revealed that hope in that moment. 
And so, God, we right now, as a church, we embrace the suffering. We embrace the trials. And we look to you, our salvation and our God. And we place our hope back in you. And we say, Lord, build more hope. And we'll trust you in all these things. Thank you for Jesus and the fact that everything's being redeemed through his death. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved.